0: Okay, uh, welcome back everybody. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Tim Blackman. I'm Pro Vice Chancellor for Research Scholarship and Quality at the Open University. And it's my great privilege to be introducing Peter Horrocks, uh, not least because I have to say the World Service is my favourite radio station. And um, frankly, I think it's um, a voice of reason and sanity in this world. Uh, that's how I'd sum it up. Um, Peter's professional achievements can really be um, summarised by his job title, Director Global News at the BBC, responsible for some 2,500 journalists across 113 countries, for the World Service, for BBC World TV News, for online news, and for BBC Media Action, which is the BBC's international development charity. So huge range of responsibilities, and Peter, we're very grateful that you've taken time out of your busy schedule to be with us today, and the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Um,
1: quite a lot of people here are familiar with the World Service as it is now. There are other people who, are, who know, knew the World Service well and less familiar with how it is now, so I thought we'd just start with a, a very brief video showing how World Service is in current Broadcasting House. the director
0: the the new not
1: very can have a the
0: cost. The sending
1: there might be um, two different kinds of reactions to it. There may be some people who see that as a nightmare vision of a monolithic news factory following a uniform agenda. Uh, There may be others who see it as uh, one of the most innovative news and cultural production centres in the world, bringing together a unique global perspective. um, We can discuss uh, where, the World, where the World Service is, but there's just some images that give that uh, impression. Um, as we heard from Marie earlier and, and from Alban, um we're in the final days of the World Service as we've known it. The clock is ticking down. It's only six days to go before the World Service comes into licence fee funding. Um, we had the last ever World Service board meeting yesterday afternoon. Uh, Annabel Blair, who looks after the governance for World Service shared with us some uh, artefacts from the from the archives, um, some extraordinary initials, not all of which we were able to interpret, discussing uh, <laughs> the great affairs of the day, a sort of ominous reference that the, the FCO has a particular focus on the United States at the moment. You know, it wasn't explained what one we, was supposed to do with that information <laughs> or what, what it meant. There was also uh, an in-depth debate about whether staff... Friday afternoon tea parties were appropriate expenditure, or, or, or otherwise. Um, so, lots of uh, lots of things which many people in this room um, would recollect from the World Service Board being in charge completely of its own affairs, obviously under o- overall kind of uh, FCO jurisdiction. Um, so, what's changing with this uh, with, the, with this structural change, uh, and what are the advantages of it? Well, I think the most important of those is the greater demonstrable independence of the BBC. Um, It's no longer the case, of course, that there are references in our minutes to what the FCA's view is of international affairs, but the perception amongst some audiences and certain governments that the paymaster being the UK government, the fact that we'll be able to say with confidence that it's the British public that are directly paying for the World Service is something which I think will help in terms of the the impression of the independence of the BBC. Looking back over the period that I've been director of the World Service and that's more than five years now, it's certainly not been without its difficulties difficulties. and in particular three years ago the tough decisions at the hands of the Foreign Office, um, the comprehensive spending review cuts which were the most substantial that uh, the World Service ever ever had. Now some people uh, talked, in my view, wrongly and and rather recklessly of the death of the World Service. And we had the difference that Colin outlined between managers and producers, and it was many producers of the World Service who who had that view. But I can stand here today and talk with pride, particularly towards those of uh, my current members of my team, about how the World Service has come through that really difficult period, in 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 my view, preparing the World Service for a really uh, flourishing future. So... um, I believe that that death wish tendency is in retreat, at least, at least for now. It may make a, a resurgence. I would, I, would, I would challenge, Marie, your statement that the World Service's future is precarious. I agree that there are questions and there are some uncertainties, but precarious, I would say, is more of a value judgment than an objective judgment that I would uh, expect through impartial World Service journalism. Um, it's clearly something to be debated. So how is the World Service uh, evolving uh, rather, than, rather than dying? Um, and again, picking up on some of the things from the Cultural Values uh, Project. Um, I would say, from what I could read into those value judgments that uh, were uh, presented in that way, that there has been a shift. I think there has been a shift away from Foreign Office determination of our agenda and our approach And broadly, to the other quadrant, the one in the top right, uh, the audience. Definitely some questions about how effectively we meet that challenge and the the competition. Um, And uh, Sir John's comment about the difference between managers and producers. Uh, Of course there are differences of perspective. But I would say that there's a broad (coughs) contiguity between the view that both the managers of the World Service and its producers now have. And that is focused on audience and a deeper understanding of audience, largely through the quality of the audience, insights that we now have on top of the kind of the audience head counting that we've always done, and crucially, the role of digital, which Marie also touched on, as something which helps us to understand what audience uh, information and news requirements are. And I think that's infinitely deeper than it's been in the past because of the capability that there, there, there now is. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. So, thinking about how things have changed since those really deep cuts where an impression was created wrongly but very damagingly that the World Service was dying, as I say, often some of the World Service's strongest friends who contributed to that, I think it's really crucial. Whatever differences people might have about you know, the, um, the editorial content that we have, the, uh, the advantages and dif- disadvantages of different models of funding, I hope there's something which unites everyone in this room, which is about the importance that the World Service plays, and understanding the way that the World Service has recovered, and more than recovered, and is resurgent since those cuts from three years ago, uh, is something which I think is, in- is incredibly important as we make this, uh, this structural change. So that period over the last few years has probably been the most rapid in the the World Service's history of change because of audience and technological change. Shortwave continues to be crucially important, but it is declining fast and that's an irreversible shift. Television is becoming the main source of news in many of the countries that we serve. And in many markets, internet access has been taking off initially via desktops, but now uh, more so uh, via mobile. Our audiences are becoming younger. Our audience is not the same demographic as the Radio 4 audience. The world that we're serving is becoming younger and the audience that we're seeking to appeal to is a particularly a young a, an, a, an audience that wants to educate itself, that has aspirations about the world, to understand the world across borders and we need to be meeting those that young audience's requirements, both with our content and with the types of technology and platforms that we use. And we need to respond to the agendas that they're interested in. And it was, I was delighted to see that the 100 Women Initiative, Lilian Landor, controller of languages, is, is here and she was the leading light um, in, in, uh, in uh, devising that series. It's a very different approach to what a traditional World Service agenda might be considered to be, where conflict, diplomacy and politics have uh, been the mainstay of the World Services agenda over many years. Those continue to be, and our audience analysis shows that they're still absolutely dominant. But other other agendas and ways of understanding the world, relating key global trends, the position of women in the world being one of those that is um, crucial to people's lives but is Massively underreported by other news organisations, and I think you were right to pick up on its you know, on its distinctiveness. It was huge, hugely distinctive. So a change in agenda as well as platform uh, and, and technology, competition. Uh, Sarah Gibson was right to say that the real competition that we face is local. It will be too uh, time consuming to go into all of that. The global uh, competition that we face is, uh, I, I believe, reasonably well-known, but is more intense than I believe than most people imagine. The scale of investment of the Chinese, for instance, into CCTV through the billions of dollars a year that they're spending uh, is extraordinary. Al Jazeera, Russia Today and others and so on. And then the competition, as I say, in local markets. Afghanistan now has 80 terrestrial television stations. So the fact that the World Service is still so strong in its radio offer, and we've now launched Pashto Television through managing to scrimp and save. We now have a bulletin in Pashto which was received with extraordinary acclaim in, in, Af- in Afghanistan. So we took that um, reduction in funding from the FCO on the chin. Uh, we weren't d- downcast or stagnant. We used it as a spur to innovation and, crucially, we had bigger cuts than we needed to to meet the funding challenge from the World Service in order to be able to reinvest in things like Pashto Television on new investments in television in Africa, in Pakistan, in India, India and so on. You saw Broadcasting House. There was understandably an anxiety for those for whom Bush House was the symbol of the strength of the World Service about moving into this, into this share building. But it's provided the, the kind of technological facilities that you saw on the film... But also, crucially, it's provided an ability for the BBC World Service to benefit from the wider BBC in terms of the content, in terms of the influences, with the colleagues making documentaries and and, and music for the domestic services, and most importantly, for the World Service to be able to offer to the UK public and to the UK audience, who from next Tuesday will be our funders, and I'll, I'll, I'll return to that. So I was enormously appreciative and full of praise for the way that the team's... Said goodbye to Bush House in an appropriate and, and and positive spirit about what had been achieved over the 70 years there, but the spirit of moving forward and reinventing ourselves was absolute was absolutely key. So let's look at some of the some of the, some of the changes that have been that have been made. I'll run ra- I'll, I'll run through these uh, fairly briefly. World well, Service so English has been revamped. We've got new programming, the newsroom, business matters, and all turn to some other uh, examples of innovation in our English English output. Uh, one of the strongest of those um, is the new BBC Trending. Uh, this is a radio programme on World Service in English. It's also a blog, it's a website, and it's also creating videos. And what it's doing is taking suggestions, tips, insights from all of the language services and from BBC monitoring. It's not just saying this is what's popular in social media around the world. There are plenty of websites that do that. It's trying to understand societies around the world and why things are proving popular and interesting. It uh, gives us insights ahead of formal news. So in the long run up to the the Ukraine story, our first indication of the strength of support uh, that there was was through the trending team using social analytics spotting that the Euromaidan hashtag in Ukraine was trending and that there was an intention to political protest there before the protesters had, had, had actually gathered. Um, and although I think there may well be some ways in which um, BBC's digital content is not succeeding in engagement, and I'm as, as, as ambitious about increasing engagement as, 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 as anyone, BBC's content is more shared on Twitter the primary pure news platform. Facebook plays a slightly different role. It's more shared on Twitter than any other news source in the world. In fact, we're twice as much shared as our second competitor, which is Mashable, which is often written about as being the kind of, you know, the the apogee of uh, successful social, social content. And we think in terms of degrees of engagement and approbation for the BBC and trust in its content, that the sharing of content through social media is emerging as one of the most significant indicators. And if you think about your own behavior, those of you who use social media, if you're going to share something with people, you think, hmm, what are people going to think about me if I share this? Especially if you're sharing on a public platform like Twitter. And so it's the trust that people have in in the content, but it's also got to be interesting and engaging as well. You don't want to be spamming your friends with just, you know, some, you know, worthy, worthy, uh, worthy articles. So it's got to have that trustworthiness, and that engagement, and the degree of social sharing, I would say, would um, challenge the conclusion that was being drawn that there was a problem about BBC digital, digital engagement. There may have been a question about the degree of engagement with a particular editorial initiative, namely the 100 Women one. What are we trying to do through all these, um, these new investments? Well, the way that the BBC has expressed its ambition for the entirety of its global operation is through Tony Hall, the new Director-General's target of a 500 million audience for the BBC as a whole, in 2022. But I think it's really important to realise that we are regarding the 500 million target as being an outcome of the strategies that the World Service and BBC Worldwide are adopting over the next few years. So if we can stay true to our values, stay true to the editorial content that we believe in, but modernise in terms of our techniques and approaches, and that is more popular than the BBC's been in the past. Our audiences are at their highest ever level for World Service, all the mentioned, 192 million. The figure for the global services as a whole, including BBC World News and BBC.com, is 256 million, over a quarter of a billion. That was never achieved in any of the previous eras of the World Service, but we believe that that can grow. We'll have to offset the continued fall in shortwave, but the investments that are being made are a, a key step towards that. Those are being enabled by the decision that the BBC Executive and Trust have made to invest more in World Service from next Tuesday than the Foreign Office currently, um, uh, currently invests. So I believe the World Service from the 1st of April is, factually, it's going to be better funded... Um, it's going to be more central to the BBC and it's going to be more independent as well. Um, we're innovating uh, in radio, although shortwave is under pressure. Our partner traffic through FM um, partner stations and also through the FM relays is strong. We're having to think about what we do for, n- for young audiences. Uh, some of you may have know of newsbeat the radio news programme on radio, on radio 1 we currently have a team developing what we're calling global newsbeat and we're going to use that title including when it's delivered in languages we will use that english title to kind of create that kind of continuity across all of our services and we're innovating about how content is created so rather than a separate team within pashto and urdu and hindi and swahili all separately making their versions of global newsbeat instead we're bringing Um, a multilingual team together to create a shared set of stories, there'll be slight differences between what we do for the the different languages. And this, um, what I call kind of collaborative or participative contributory journalism, where the language services are not in receipt of a monolithic central news agenda that's maybe been determined by the editor of the the UK television 6 o'clock news. Instead, what's happening is that the language services and BBC monitoring are using their depth of understanding of the audiences that they, s- that they serve to create content that meets the need for a global perspective that the kind of young audience that we're trying to attract is, 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 is looking for. This is absolutely at the cutting edge of editorial innovation of any content organisation in the world. There's nowhere else that I know of that is trying to genuinely um, bring multinational and multilingual teams together to be able to create content appropriately for all the different platforms that we have. We're investing in some of our, 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 our premier um, uh, offers on World Service English. Uh, you may know Witness, a programme that's also transmitted now on Radio 4. Wonderful uh, insights through eyewitnesses to contemporary history, a nine-minute programme that is um, well-consumed both on radio but also through podcasts. It's also going to be created... Uh, in video and and transmitted uh, on English television and online, but also made into languages. So Persian, for instance, is running a a pilot with that. The BBC iPlayer radio app, which some of you may use to consume the BBC content in the UK, which includes World Service English, is going to be developed as an internationally available app, which will also have all of the language services. So we'll be able to make our content content available to anyone, and that Obviously, there are increasing numbers of people who've got those, uh, those, those devices. Um, and we're investing in television, as I, as I said. Uh, African, French for Africa, Pashto, Kyrgyz, the Burmese service is piloting at the moment, and we hope to be able to, to launch that. But how are we going to be able to meet all these different demands? The fundamental cost structure of the World Service is still, fundamental, is still very similar to the one that John Tusser um, uh, had um, 20, 20 years ago the funding has stayed very roughly the same and that was the funding for a set of radio services which are still you know the most cost effective way of being able to get being able to get to audiences because of the need to be able to deliver on other platforms and have innovation in different kinds of content how are we going to be able to cope we've got a small increase in the license fee we've been asked told rather both by the foreign office and by the bbc trust to raise uh, to increase our commercial commercial income we already make uh, income, for instance, in the United States through the distribution of our content. We've started having advertising on three of our language service websites and also on one relay in Berlin in English. We have permission to extend where we believe there's a business case to do so onto all of our services except for anything that's um, broadcast into the UK. Uh, And we also have permission to seek sponsorship for our content both from commercial sources and non-commercial philanthropic cor- uh, sources. And you may know BBC Media Action has also been already been referenced. BBC Media Action creates a substantial amount of content on World Service airwaves already, supported by Department for International Development and also by a range of other appropriate philanthropic uh, and grant-giving uh, in- in institutions. Um, understandably and rightly, questions have been raised about whether taking other sources of funding will undermine audiences impressions of BBC's editorial editorial integrity. Our audience research shows conclusively that what audiences look for from the BBC is the quality of the content. They are less concerned about its non-commercial nature. That is rightly a perception of the BBC that is held very firmly by audiences in the UK because of the non-commercial nature. But for more than 20 years BBC World News, which after all is the biggest BBC service internationally has been funded through advertising and has produced content absolutely to the same standards uh, as the rest of the global news operations. So it's not surprising that the audience are already comfortable with different sources sources of funding. We need to approach that carefully and to to, to implement it with with real dexterity. But by sharing the expertise that we already have from BBC Media Action and from our commercial news operation, we believe it's possible to do that. It also means that it's going to open us up to a variety of different partnerships and we're going to focus on partnership in a a different way. Uh, So UK cultural organisations, academic institutions, the Open University. I've been talking this afternoon to Tim about the ways in which the BBC and the Open University, the higher education sector overall, can collaborate to take UK knowledge to the world in the same way as we take news to the world. And I share um, Graham's concern about the withdrawal of the world service from some of its cultural <coughs> output it is more costly that's the main reason why it happened but we know that cultural and educational content as a complement to news is something which audiences are looking uh, are looking for and we intend to reinstate as much of that as possible some of it will be funded by these news by these news sources it's easier and more appropriate to get <coughs> sponsorship in relation to non news in fact it's not we're not allowed to take sponsorship in relation to news or, new, news, news or current, current affairs. Um, last sort of um, main, main section relates to this structural change and what does the case for the, how does the world, case for the World Service and the value of the World Service alter as a result of this structural change? Well, I think that what the World Service stands for is clearer and stronger... Um, than it has been under the Foreign Office. In, in fact, there was always a, there was always a kind of a compunction um, about actually saying what the World Service was for, because what the Foreign Office thought it was for, and what the World Service and its you know, the people who believed in it thought it was for, that didn't kind of ever kind of quite meet. And so, classic kind of British you know, muddling through, no one wrote it down. You know, it just was the World World Service. And as Colin said, you know, it stood for lots of different things for many people. But the new operating licence, which the BBC Trust and Lord Williams, the international trustee, is here and is going to be on the panel in a moment, says, it's a real fantastic clarion call, the editorial agenda of the World Service should provide a global perspective on the world, not one based on any national or commercial interest. And that not based on any national interest clearly refers, uh, references both the UK government and any other other government. And I think that degree of stated independence and that our global perspective is what we deliver to all audiences and, crucially, that global perspective now delivered to UK audiences as well. So the fear that I know lies behind many of the reservations that people in this room have expressed over many years about the direction of travel for the World Service, the incorporation into the wider BBC and the licence fee funding that somehow that would be the dilution, the absorption into a kind of monolithic editorial framework. Instead, what we intend to do, and you hold us to this, is that the global perspective, which is the defining characteristic of the new, the modern world service, is not just going to be delivered to international audiences, but is also, and is now, being delivered to UK audiences with greater force and clarity and and inspiration than was the case in the past so we've been able to um do that through the organization coming together more integration clearly some questions and 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 um, matters to kind of think through carefully about how all of that works but those of you who may have heard the wonderful um alexis solobenko who from our formerly from our ukrainian service who's our uh, editorial head for language services, contributing his insights to the crisis in Ukraine and Crimea in recent weeks, our Arabic service colleagues, our Burmese colleagues, our colleagues in Swahili, our South African team from from, uh, English for Africa talking about Mandela. Those contributions to UK audiences on uh, the Today programme and Newsnight and so on, we're currently doing a series of Public events around the country, where we're linking up with diaspora audiences, with the Somali audience in in Cardiff, with the Arabic um, population um, in Glasgow, for instance, bringing the value of the World Service to all of the, all of the UK, and really using that understanding that we have globally to bring it to, to bring it home to UK to UK audiences. Um, not all. UK audiences will necessarily be convinced by that. There are uh, difficult arguments that we need to have as we approach a licence fee and um, charter debate with the World Service as part of the BBC's funding mechanism for the first time. One of the ways in which I try and explain that most clearly is to talk about a story that David Attenborough told me about how he felt that the films that he's made for the BBC around the world for so many decades was because of the World service that the World Service provides the reputation for the BBC and the trust in the BBC which has enabled him to be able to to, to make those films. The economic benefit that we create for BBC Worldwide through the reputation that we create, which then feeds through into um, benefits for licence fee payers as well. There's the direct broadcasting in the UK. World Service English has an audience of more than 2 million not far short of of, of the of, of the Radio Three audience, and as I say, those direct contributions to programmes like the Today programme. You may have heard um, Jim O'Neill talking about the the new bricks, the mints, in a joint broadcast between Evan Davis and the World Service uh, business economics um, uh, cor- correspondent, looking at Nigeria a few weeks ago. So we need to be clearer about those benefits back to the back to the UK to work out how the soft power advantages are best expressed in this new environment. And we need to hang on to those arguments which have been um, so strong and so powerful uh, in the context of Foreign, foreign, foreign Office funding, you know, the, the direct benefits to British be- business. We know that those who consume BBC content are twice as likely to trade with Britain than those who don't. That is an enormous direct benefit. Um, to the the UK economy, and we need to rehearse those and make sure that that those arguments, the instrumental arguments as opposed to the intrinsic arguments uh, and the distinction that Marie drew earlier, that we're using those. But the fundamental thing is that our values and what we're about are based on those those intrinsic values. So um, I believe that the support we're getting from the BBC and the value we're bringing to licence fee payers means that the legacy of the World Service, which so many people in this room have contributed to, can be secured for the future. Um, I know that there are still fears about integration, and we can't be certain about what the outcome will be, but there were similar fears three years ago when people talked about the death of the World Service after the cuts from the CSR. I don't know what it is about people who believe in the World Service that makes them so fearful about it that they express those fears in a way which can potentially become self-fulfilling. I would ask everyone who cherishes the World Service to think really carefully about how to express their concerns and their support for it in the future. So I believe the World Service future is bright and can be brighter than it's ever been. There are going to be more changes, there's going to need to be more imagination about how we serve audiences in in a competitive world. But I believe we can face uh, a World Service under the licence fee with real confidence from April 1st. Thank you very much.